Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Calls Offside, the podcast that services both the direct-to-consumer opportunities and challenges that need to be overcome within the passion industries of sport, media, and entertainment. I'm your host, Neil Joyce, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today on a special two-part discussion with Glenn White, currently at Bungie, the video gaming company, on cracking the code that exists to identify and create meaningful relationships with fans and consumers. Welcome, Glenn. Thanks, Neil. Appreciate it. Before we get started, um, as I mentioned before, absolute pleasure to have you on. And rather than me do you a massive disservice, I think our listeners would love to hear about the fascinating journey that you've been on over the last 35 years, from your originations in advertising and technology, and most recently across the plethora of amazing video gaming and entertainment companies, not to forget to mention your passion for the Seattle Sounders. My degrees in film and television from NYU, um, my degrees in animation and live sport broadcast. And uh, shortly after graduating, I got a job uh, shooting animated television commercials. From there, uh, I got my first agency job working for Motor Media, which was the first digital advertising agency, all digital advertising agency. While I was there, um, I helped traffic the first banners on the internet, AT&T on Hotwired. Um, And I wrote the first banner standard for the IAB, kind of a story in that. After that, uh, went Uh, all agency side, Wonderman for several years. And then I went um, client side, Uh, joined PopCap and EA, then Epic Games, and now now here at Bungie. But that spanned uh, 35 years, long time. You and I obviously go a a decent way back and we we talk about passion products and interests and all those things. A couple of questions for you. What do passion products actually mean? And then why are they of such interest to you? So passion products, just sort of a term that either I coined or a bunch of people coined sort of at the same time, is the idea that there are products that people generate a lot of sentiment around or generate a lot of dialogue, a lot of passion, a lot of emotion around. People are really excited about their sports team. They're really excited about their video game. They're excited about their musical artist. Um they're not excited about their financial services products. They're not excited about their medication they're taking. They're not excited about their banking. They're not excited. Like, because of that, the amount of signal that you get from a passion product, if, if you're a brand, is substantially higher in passion products. So if you think about what a passion product actually is, it's people will get online and talk about how much they love their sports team or they talk about going to the match or they talk about any of these other things. And you can see that. Like that's available for you to see. Whereas nobody really talks about their 401k online and the people that do are not, if, if you measure the amount of dialogue around those two different things, it's reasonably safe to assume that there's a lot more dialogue about the Seattle Sounders than there is about, you know, some 401k somewhere. And I'm, I'm not saying that 401ks aren't important or anything like that, but it's just the amount of conversation that actually occurs around those things. They just kind of get online and they go, wow, did you watch that match last night? Or, you know, amazing goal. Whereas nobody says, wow, um, you know, my 401k is up 0.2% this week. Like, I, And I'm sure there are people who are like that and I'm not taking away from them, but like they're not in the majority. <laughs> There's a level of like need and want, right, from a product or delivery standpoint, all of these things. And uh I think passion is something that is hard to elicit in some of those more utility-based products versus something that are more experiential. Yeah, which, which changes the challenge from a marketing perspective, right? Like you don't have to 
prod people an awful lot to get them to talk about video games. I can tell you that for free. Whereas you do have to be very clear about, like if you're doing research for a pharmaceutical product or, or, or any of those other things, house cleaning, people don't have strong emotions about their paper towel brand. I, you know, and so the commoditization of those things tends to drive out any sort of major sentiment. And that major sentiment means that there's not a lot of dialogue or you don't have strong feelings about it. The thing about strong feelings is, like I said, they generate signal. Right. And so if you're thinking about it from a social media listening standpoint, or if you're fortunate enough to be in video games or broadcast or any of those other things where you're getting direct signal to the consumer of the product, right? We call them players, but like they could be players or consumers, fans, call them what you want. The amount of signal that a video game gets or a broadcaster gets um, is nonstop. Because the, when you're actually, for example, when you're actually playing a game, the game talks to servers and that's how these games operate, right? When you're dealing with a multiplayer online game or whatever it is, you're getting constant signal. You know what the player is doing. You know you're watching behaviors. You're seeing those things. And that observable behavioral data is, you know, anonymously, right? We don't want to be spying on anybody, but like understanding what, players are thinking or feeling or doing or how they're reacting to certain things so that you can ensure that they're having a good time or so that you can ensure that you're meeting their needs is, is sort of instrumental to success. Whereas you think about um, a can of soda, for example, there is no signal. All you've got is they purchased this product or they did not purchase this product. And, and even so, they're purchasing it for once removed, right? There's no direct relationship. You're, you're, you're buying that soda from a grocery store. You're buying it from a deli. You're buying, you're buying it at a, a fast food restaurant. And so your ability to have a reasonable dialogue or to understand consumer need without direct research as opposed to observable behavioral data is, is just not there. And so passion products have the advantage of, of having observable data immediately as either part of the product itself or as part of an individual's willingness to engage on that product without being um, motivated to do so. I think you, you touched upon like many, many areas of things that we, we talk about quite frequently. And I think it's probably fair to say that look, across sport and entertainment and gaming companies, they're, they're in a relative unique position, right? Against some of those other industries that mentioned like financial services um, if we, we wanted to kind of peel that back a little bit more as well is are, are within those passion kind of industries or verticals, are there some that do it better than others? And let, let's pick up on some industries that I know are close to both of yours, my heart, gaming and, and sport, right? Where within gaming, as you've mentioned, you, you do kind of control and own the signal around that consumer or the, the player, as you put it. But in sport, the broadcasters own the signal. So does that disadvantage sport versus gaming? And would love to hear your thoughts on that. So we talked, we talked about gaming, but let's, let's talk about sport because sport, in my mind, is actually a multi-layered problem, right? I think the, the clubs would tell you that they get very good signal for the people that actually attend the matches. They, they know who's showing up. They know who's purchasing the tickets. I can't speak for all clubs, but I know that for the Sounders, when you purchase something, um, they're giving you a discount if you're a season ticket member. They like to call them season ticket members. Um, and they give you a discount. So they're measuring what you're purchasing in concessions. They're like, there's a whole bunch of signal that's coming from the actual attendance of the event. But 
when we talk about the spectating part of that, that is to say, whether you're watching it at home, you're watching it at a pub, you're right. The the broadcasters have a much better sense of who's watching. And, and even if you're watching it um, at a pub or you're watching it someplace else, you're not even getting that viewership data, right? Because you don't know who's actually attending those events and so on and so forth. I think the, the advantage that the gaming industry has is that by definition, it's all digital signal. Like it has to be from the ground up. And so while there are portable games that aren't client server, there are single player games that don't have that level. And so there's slightly less signal. A lot of games currently are client have some sort of client server relationship and get some sort of sense of what the player is doing. I'm not suggesting that they do it for nefarious purposes, quite the contrary. They do it so that they can make sure that the game is fun and that you're having a good time and adjusting things where necessary, either in the current game right then and there or for updates and, and whatever it is. So folks expect that and want that. But when we get back to sport, You know, there's not a lot of signal that comes back. So it's hard to understand whether or not the need states in question are being met. The goal of any brand is to try to address um, an individual's need state um, that that generates the engagement that that you're looking for. I I think, as as you mentioned there, we we teed this up with the, the fact that the broadcasters own that signal data. There's a level of disintermediation, right, that's occurred, whether that's knowingly, wittingly, or out of their control, right? The, the Premier League is ultimately controlled by the body that governs it, and they do deals with all the different broadcast channels out there, which gives them access to some level of data, but the clubs have a lack of data, as you mentioned. The club's data asset is only as strong as the ability to collect that data, right? And it's typically limited to people that will go to a game or buy a jersey or tickets and merchandise around all of those things. Yeah, but that, that's true of most brands, right? Like, and I'm not, I, I'm, you know, not to call out anybody in particular, but if you're a retail brand, you've got the same problem. That, that disintermediation occurs quite radically uh, regardless. Um, super common in automotive. Automotive is a well-known problem where the dealerships have all the relationship with the purchasers and the brands themselves don't. But the the net of it is that most brands are dealing with an intermediary. This becomes more complicated when you start dealing with aggregators, right? Where you're dealing with a Google or a Facebook or an Amazon where the relationship is with Google or Facebook or Amazon and all the brands are doing is asking those companies to have a conversation on their behalf. And so if you you talk to a Facebook or an Amazon, they'll tell you that they're Amazon customers or Facebook users. They're not brand X's customers. They don't view it that way. And so that disintermediation is part and parcel of where sort of advertising is because of the problems that we've just discussed, right? The relationship isn't actually there with those brands. And so you're relying upon a third party to tell you whether or not you can talk to these people, whether or not they'll let you, um, and paying for that privilege on top of that. So that disintermediation is sort of part and parcel of the game, unless you have some sort of direct relationship with, with the customer in question. And I think that, um, sort of going forward, if brands are to be successful, um, you either have to have strong partnership with these Amazons, Googles, Facebooks, um, or you have to not rely upon them at all. Um, or very minimally um, in order to be successful. I, I think you, you touch upon a really important point there, right? The the business model you've been used to where you're either going wholeheartedly direct to consumer and you have the proposition and value and passion that allows that to happen, 
or the rest of it is really around how do you maybe shift more direct to consumer, but still appreciate that there's a level of disintermediation, whether it's a third party platform like a Google or Facebook or some of your traditional supply and distribution chains. I think where I look to someone who seems to do that well from my perspective is the transformation that Nike have been on. Would love to to get your thoughts on what they've done from being very much a brand who sold product through retailers to then creating a much solid footprint from a percentage of sales sold to directly themselves versus just relying on those areas as well. So Nike is an interesting case study because Nike is a lifestyle brand that also happens to be a passion brand. Mm. I'd put Apple in that in, in that as well, right? They are less about the quality of the product. They're about generating sentiment more than trying to sell the quality of their products, right? Apple doesn't talk about how great their products are. They've got a user base that will buy anything that it puts in front of them. And you can see that now with the, <laughs> with the Vision Pro, right? Which is a really, really expensive beta product. And people are buying it because it's super exciting, whatever it is. Nike doesn't advertise in a traditional sense. They don't really talk about specific shoes. They don't talk about the fit. They don't talk about models. They talk about what Nike means. They talk about the just do it and that exercise for everyone and to get off the couch, right? And there's something to be said for that conversation, which is, again, generates a lot of sentiment, but it's not about the product per se, right? It's the, the product marketing um, it tends to be very, very narrow. Now, I'm not saying that they didn't do a whole heck of a lot with Jordan and everybody wanted Air Jordans, but it wasn't about the quality of the shoe. And while they do have some advertising in very specific cases about the technology that goes into it and the quality of the, the shoes and so on and so forth, not about that. And so their transformation has been about taking, leveraging all of that above the line, all of that awareness and brand sentiment and asking people to deal directly with them as opposed to going to a Foot Locker or any of these other shoe stores that you could go to. And so there's a lot of products that that Nike has experimented with over the years, the Nike Band and all these other things, with the intent of trying to generate that direct signal and finally realizing that they could just sell the shoes direct. And while there there is some challenge to selling shoes direct, people seem to be pretty content with buying them online. And I'm not 100% sure what the end-to-end path is, like, but at some point you purchased a set of Nikes at a store, figured out what your size was, figured out what your fit was, figured out what you liked, and just bought them online from that point forward, which is very much how a lot of purchase funnels go. And Nike's done a pretty good job of maintaining the pricing, maintaining the, the, the quality, and allowing people to customize their shoes in a way that really makes it theirs, but also generates a ton of signal. This is what I want my shoes to look like. This is the colors I like. This is how I prefer them to fit. And getting really good signal from that and, and probably affecting their product lines as a result. Do you think like if you're a Real Madrid or a Barcelona where you've got very strong brand and they're developing with their partners merchandise that's starting to be more lifestyle oriented as well. Do you, do you think they've got a similar type of opportunity? It's an interesting question. If they're dealing with a third party partner to create these goods, they're disintermediating themselves again, uh, unless there's a partnership that allows for the sharing of that data, which is kind of, I don't want to get into the, the privacy implications of that, but like the opportunity for large clubs that have 
a huge amount of brand awareness and, and a huge amount of sentiment around it is heavy engagement. Not just the sales of merchandise necessarily, but engaging with the club in ways that actually matter. Personalization of the fan experience is kind of a big one with me. Um, there are some uh, broadcasters now that are exploring with um, giving the fan control of the angle that they're doing or the broadcast that they're listening to. They want to listen to the home uh, announcers or the away announcers. They want to listen to the third party. They want to listen to another country or in a different language. Like the ability to consume the experience the way that they want to consume it, I think is is probably a, a big, big opportunity here. And that signal is also there. Understanding what you can do in order to be able to generate more direct signal, I think is kind of important. You made mention of the fact that like the, the Prem actually manages the relationship with the broadcasters. And so that disintermediates it a step further. And I think that that's probably true. And that's almost certainly true for most clubs and most leagues, right? It's not true of all of them, right? Obviously, Juventus goes their own way when it comes to all of that stuff. And, and there are other clubs like the Yankees who do the same, right? In, in Major League Baseball, where they have their own broadcast, like they're not incumbent upon these league negotiated contracts. And that's something to, to be thinking about because then they control the signal better. They understand the fan base and, and they can negotiate whatever they can negotiate. Um, I'm not saying that any of that's easy, and I'm not suggesting that it, it's even desirable for, for most clubs. Um, if, if I were a smaller brand, I'd take what was given thank you. Um, you know, you think about um, launching a small mobile game, for example. Go ahead. Take the Facebook API and SDK, put it in your game, get all the signal you want, and purchase all your media through Facebook. Like, that's, that's a perfectly legitimate way to go if you don't have the wherewithal to go ahead and create all those channels and signals yourself. But understand that you're sharing that signal with a third party who is going to utilize that data to their advantage, right? Like, you, you are intentionally disintermediating yourself, and you're trusting the third party to, to, to act in your best interest where yeah. provably it don't. The opportunity for those clubs is to leverage... All of that really great sentiment, leverage all of that really great brand awareness into improving the experience that the fans have. You know, having been a ridiculous sports fan for as long as I have, um, I know what works. I know when um, I get a personalized birthday message from my club, it means something to me. Having a player that you know that they like send a personal message to them, even if it's not really a personal message and it's completely generated by a third party or whatever it is, is still something, right? And so really kind of reinforcing the relationship that the club has with the, with the fan, I think is something that's important because I can tell you that a lot of the supporter groups feel very strongly that the, the love that they have for the club is not often reciprocated. And so um, the idea of that the club actually loves the fans back, I think, is is something that the Sounders do particularly well. Right. Whether it be players getting out into the community and doing community service and, and going to hospitals and showing up at at community events and things like that. But it's also the club themselves. The club, um, the Seattle Sounders build soccer pitches all over the Puget Sound area um, as somebody who. Um, played public soccer in Seattle, I can tell you that there's a, a shortage of pitches. Lots of people play soccer in, 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 in the Seattle area. And there's a shortage of pitches to the point where adults are playing at 11 o'clock at night or 4 o'clock in the morning because they just can't get pitch time anywhere. And so the, the creation of the, the, the pitches is actually a big deal to the community at large, and they understand that the Sounders really kind of want people out there playing. 
again, I, I think your, your comment around like personalization and really giving those really strong examples of like the, the grassroots fan, if you like, the, the fan that wants to participate, wants to be the next Sounders star player and is playing at 11 o'clock at night. I think it's a, a fascinating construct in its own right there. The, the other piece that's equally fascinating, and I know you and I have gotten into this a few times before as well, is that the level of how do you really drive revenue growth, which is what a lot of sports teams are looking at, outside of that kind of like micro segment of that ultimate passionate soccer fan who wants to be the next star. And how do you deliver revenue growth to the masses who have been disintermediated, right? And we'd love to talk about, I guess, trying to crack that code and the introduction, I guess, of like that fan formula, right? And not identifying fans all the same way, understanding their differences and like either personalizing at a micro level or mass personalization. And we'd love to get into that with a, a couple of questions for you um, straight away. So there's obviously lots of topic around second screening. In your view, how do you think clubs should invest in digital content around and during matches to nurture relationships with younger fans, especially those in other countries, right? So you've got a different type of demographic and age, but you've also got the geolocation piece uh, rolled into it. It's obviously quite complex. Let's start with the with the youth situation. I believe in CRM over sort of above the line stuff. Settled, known products that have a long history. I'm looking at lifetime value instead of immediate short-term gain. The challenge that a lot of sport is having right now is they're seeing a, a sharp downturn in a number of fans for a given sport or whatever it is. And you're seeing this in particular for Major League Baseball and to a lesser extent, the NBA. They're not making new fans. The problem that I think we're seeing is that there's never been a time when share of, of attention or share of wallet has been more scattered. And so you've got more sports that are available to fans and they only have a certain amount of time in any given week. And so you need to create that relationship with the fan very, very early on as kids. Kids grow up to be adult fans. Um, it is very difficult to create a fan once a, an individual is an adult. My relationship with the New York Rangers, ice hockey, the New York Rangers goes back to my dad taking me to matches when I was literally two years old. And I watch the Rangers on TV. I buy Rangers merch. I do, like, that's just who I am. Now, I think that in general, you want to create this relationship very, very early on. I was, I was talking with a friend of mine the other day. We both grew up in Brooklyn, New York, but he's a 49ers fan. What possessed you to be a 49ers fan? He goes, when I was young, my cousin gave me a 49ers helmet. He didn't want it. From that day forward, I was a 49ers fan. And I'm like, well, that, that seems silly. He goes, well, I mean, there's more to it than that, that like those were the heydays and the 49ers were winning. And so creating that formative experience when you're young actually creates lifelong fans, which generates that lifetime value that you want over time. I think that's a, a good example of, I guess, the, maybe the shift in culture and mentality within some sports organizations to know that there's obviously huge pressures financially to deliver immediate revenue and clearly broadcast deals, sponsorship and selling more jerseys is the, the primary driver there. But looking longer term and having that fan lifetime value the core of what they're trying to do around identification of new fans, whether they're the Gen Z combined with other fans that are in other geographies where there's the opportunity to engage with them is, is probably that kind of recipe that they're, they're trying to put together. 
I think that it, it's bi-directional, right? If you show that you are welcoming to kids, kids bring parents along. Like, I think that there's probably an opportunity to go ahead and sponsor youth leagues and sponsor, make it more palatable for families to go to matches and things like that, but really kind of lean into that, right? Schools and youth leagues and youth organizations and, and community youth stuff, right? Like the, the pitches that... Um, the Sounders are creating. All of that generates lifelong fans. And people want to be involved in their communities, I think, in general. So you see a sports club that does that and you want to be a part of that. You're more willing to, to show up, buy more merch, go to the matches, especially if it's affordable for you to do so. Making that more accessible for families with kids, getting kids to those matches, making it easier for kids to attend those matches. Um, and that also applies to sort of college-age folks. Um, something that I think the Bundesliga does super well is they make tickets for university students and trade unionists much cheaper. And I think that's important, showing that the fans are valued and, and wanting them to, to be present, bear witness, um, I think is, is pretty important as well. Um, I, I recognize the immediate pressure, but the immediate pressure is sort of a separate problem to the pressure you're going to have tomorrow. If you're seeing the trend, right, and the trend is the earlier you start engaging with them, the more likely they are to engage with you later on, which gives you the data that you need. And I think that the long-term play, really getting to a point where you have long-term reliable fans that you can rely upon, long-term lifetime value that you can watch that go up over time. Um, really is your long-term opportunity, especially when you're talking about the volume of fans that you already have. It's really kind of moving people into a state where they where they see the value in engaging with the with the club directly. We've done a, a fair degree of analysis around the strong affinity and overlap between video gaming and some of the publications within there, and also sports fans. Is video gaming like a very important part of the toolkit and relationships in that area for these sports organizations to access wider fans with some joined up propositions or partnerships? I mean, certainly can be, right? We know that video games have a lot of direct signal in general. You take a look at the fact that many people in the United States, their first interaction with soccer is EA's video game. I mean, so you have to acknowledge that accessibility in terms of availability of knowledge of the sport, right? Football is a, a super easy game to understand at a, a rudimentary level. But if you think about all the tactics, the depth of awareness that really creates a fan, understanding what's actually going on when you're watching is a lot more. Video games allow for interaction that help with the understanding of tactics and strategy around what happens on, on a pitch. And there's sort of no replacing that. There's been a lot of good initiatives um, in the NHL. Seattle did a fantastic job their first season in the league where they knew they were reaching fans that had never watched pro hockey before and spent a fair amount of the broadcast sort of leaning in and saying, icing means this. This is what a two-line pass is. Understanding the terminology around it and spent some time explaining it. Anything that generates signal is potentially a good thing for you. We already know that one of the phenomenon that um, I imagine EA can tell you is that before, during, and after a game is being played, players will attempt to recreate that event. Before 
during and after the Super Bowl, players played it millions of times. And those games have a pretty good hit rate in terms of actually determining the outcome of those games to some degree. Is there an opportunity to get direct signal from people to really understand what's going on there? I believe that there is. ESPN believes that there is. EA believes that there is. The leagues believe that there is. So I think there's probably an opportunity for teams to probably do deals with anything that has direct signal, apps on mobile devices, games on consoles, any of those things that generate information to and from fans um, can help tailor the experience and improve engagement, generate signal. Thanks so much, Glenn, for participating in this, this first part. We're going to take a, a very short break and I'll be back soon for the, the second part here, where we're going to dig a little bit deeper concepts such as acquiring fans, for instance, uh, within there, who owns the fan, um, and ultimately, uh, the, the dreaded D word, data, will uh, surface, no doubt. So look, thanks, everybody. Uh, remember to subscribe, share, like, and view if you're on YouTube as well. And welcome back to Pulled Offside for the next episode shortly. Thanks again, Glenn.